0: So it's been years since I've been on a court, but tennis was a, kind of a staple feature of my family growing up. I played a lot. I was an instructor at camp for a few years. I went to a lot of live matches, U.S. Open, I think for like a decade straight with my family. And so it was kind of thrilling when 16 years ago, almost exactly to the day, I had a chance to attend Wimbledon in England, which is like actually being played right now, um, my sister and my brother-in-law, her husband, they were living over there for a couple of years doing a job, and the cool thing about Wimbledon, especially in the early rounds, it's actually really accessible. Like, it's a very proper British thing, it looks like it'd be really expensive, but in the early rounds, if you go late in the day, it stays sunlight there until like 10.30 at night, so they play late into the night, you can actually... Enter the grounds and walk around and see a bunch of different matches for like five pounds, I think it was. What I most remember about that day was the really humorous way that you entered the grounds of Wimbledon. Like, there was a very British, proper-looking gentleman, crisp, starched, perfectly pressed white shirt perfectly creased pants who came out with what looked like a little stop sign and he would greet you when you were online or on queue. i'm not going to attempt to do the british accent because it makes me sound like even more of a dork but just so imagine it this way and he would stand next to you when you form the end of the line and he say would the queue ends here <laughs> and then if someone got online in back of you he would stand back he would stand back two paces and say again the queue ends here and if it shortened, he would step forward and say, the queue ends here. And this went on and on and on and never stopped. And I thought, am I in a Monty Python skit <laughs> that is a parody of formal British ways of being? But it was not a skit. It was real life. And it was very amusing. And the day was a lot of fun. Tennis also taught me something else, which is that if I ever wanted to make something my own, first I had to learn the basics. I think my first tennis coach, I was about 10 years old or so, and I had been watching Wimbledon, and I had been watching the U.S. Open, and I think I you know, I wanted to play like John McEnroe, or I wanted to play like Bjorn Borg, and I was out there on the court, and I was trying to look like the people who I knew played tennis really well, except I was not. The ball was going this way, and that way, and this way, and that way, and he said, you know what, you got to learn the basics, tennis court right here, the baseline, he said, After you hit the ball, I want you to return to that notch right at the center of the baseline. Forehand, step that way, back, backhand this way. Always return to the basics. Eventually, I became a decent enough player that I kind of had my own style, but I never forgot that lesson. Before, we can really make something our own. Got to learn the basics. That was the first lesson I got in that, but not the final lesson. I've been writing for well over half my life professionally at this point. And there was one lesson that I remember real early on from pretty much every writing teacher. I mean, this is back into elementary school. Never start a sentence with the word and. Probably learned that as well, too. Never start a sentence with the word and. And for years, I didn't. And now I do all the time. (laughs) I've had editors, because I've written books and, you know, I've been published. I've had editors who take their big red pen out and just mark that crap right out of there. And I still do it all the time. I do it actually because of some spiritual commitments, some deep convictions about the nature of the world. Which is everything comes from someplace else. Thich Nhat Hahn called it interbeing everything inter is nothing is totally self generating James Luther Adams who was a unitarian ethicist taught in the prior century he said there is no such thing as the immaculate conception of an idea perhaps it's simply this that reality if we scratch the surface of what we call reality what we see there is relationship and So the most honest way I know to begin anything is with that word and. It's kind of like what that 90s band said. Every new beginning comes from some other beginning's end. Not my favorite song, but a good line. (laughs) Nothing really has its own beginning and, and truly nothing really has its own middle. So yes, even if starting sentences with and is not stylistically the right way to do it, there is an implicit and in every sentence I use. Today's Spirit Flix movie, about the stories that we watch on different kinds of screens and find meaning in them, the summer series that we do here at Wellsprings. It is about a guy who lives with an and that he appears to be the only person that is aware of it. I mean, you see the description right there. I understand many of you went to see this together last Wednesday. It's a fun movie. I I really enjoyed it. So he has the knowledge of the Beatles that no one else does. And I'll describe it just very quickly for you. Jack is a struggling musician who plays in bars and restaurants in a seaside British town, and it is very cl- clear his career is going absolutely nowhere. He is just about at the point where he is ready to give it up, stop being a musician, when something very strange happens. There is a worldwide blackout. Lasting 12 seconds, you see it spinning all the way around the globe as the lights go out everywhere. And in that 12 seconds, something happens that's really unpleasant to Jack, which is when he looks around, he sees all the lights going out in this little British seaside town. He gets hit by a bus. His guitar is destroyed. He loses two of his teeth. He winds up in the hospital. He's got a process of recovery to go through. And he gets out, and he's still convinced Not going to be a musician anymore. And his friends, his core supporters, the four people in his life who actually believe in him, they get him a new guitar. And they kind of goad him as they're sitting there, have some drinks one day. Come on, play us something. Throws up his hands, and he starts to play yesterday. And they are astounded. When did you write that? He says it's yesterday. It's the most famous song of all time, the Beatles. And they don't accept it. They think he wrote the song yesterday. He thinks they are putting him on. An elaborate joke. Until he goes home and he Googles the Beatles, B-E-A-T-L-E-S. And all he sees on the Google is B-E-E-T-L-E-S. He actually looks through his old record collection, and there are no Beatles albums there. And the realization hits him. Oh, my God. I appear to be the only person who remembers that John, Paul, George, and Ringo ever existed as a band today. And then he recognizes what a gift he has been given. And he starts madly scribbling down all the lyrics and the titles of all the songs and transcribing the music from his head. Because as far as he knows, that's the only place where it now lives. And after a few kind of getting out of the gates attempt to share the music of the Beatles, which don't go so well, his parents think Let It Be is a nice song, but they call it Leave It Be. <laughs> It's a pretty charming movie. He actually gets his break. <clears throat> Cause these are the Beatles songs. <laughs> and he is on the road to becoming the most famous person in the world. And his life has turned upside down. And in the middle of this very charming, very sweet, very warm-hearted movie, that's also kind of a rom-com as well too, he starts to have a crisis of conscience. Are these mine to share? What if someone finds me out? Maybe I won't play them at all. And is that the right choice? Because who am I to deprive the rest of the world of the songs of the Beatles, even if the Beatles don't actually exist anymore? And this kind of reaches ahead as the recording industry in L.A. kind of gets their hooks into him, and he's about to become the next big thing. And he plays his own version of the famous thing from the Beatles Let It Be and get back at the top of an old hotel. He plays help, but he plays it with complete and utter desperation because he feels, bless you, so completely isolated and so completely alone. Right in the middle of this sweet, warm-hearted movie, there's a question question that is relevant to each and every person, those of us in real life, not in some magical realist universe. How do we live a life with the burdens and the blessings of kind of an old school word, responsible stewardship, recognizing that in the midst of all of the gifts we have been given, how best can we share those gifts back with the life that furnished us with those gifts in the first place? How can we live a life of responsible stewardship? That's what Jack struggles with. Now, he experiences some distress about it, but by and large, the tone of this movie is pretty upbeat and pretty lighthearted and pretty sweethearted as well, too. Uh, there's a few jokes about what also doesn't exist beyond the Beatles, like Coke does not exist in this world. <laughs> I'll get to another one in just a second later on in this message. But one of the other things, and it's, it's you've got to be kind of a music person, which I am, to kind of notice this joke. Um, but there's a band called Oasis, remember, from the 90s? Now, I liked Oasis, uh, but charitably, charitably, Oasis could be called Beatles-inspired. <laughs> Less charitably, they are an entire ripoff of the Beatles. And so while he's searching for beetles and finds only bugs, this kind of thought crosses his mind, and you see him enter Oasis, and all he gets is a picture of a palm tree in a desert. And he says, figures. (laughs) It's a nice moment. So I like Oasis. One of their songs that actually I particularly like is a song called Live Forever. And I think that's a question kind of embedded in this movie. Because the truth is, for all of us, unless we do one of two things, either create or destroy something completely life-changing for other people, most of us eventually will be completely forgotten after we die. Now, this is actually a spiritual teaching that teachers have given me over the years to sit with and feel sadness, grief, relief, all kinds of things with. And what I've come to find out for myself is, is another thing, which is a truth that kind of holds that truth that eventually all of us are going to be forgotten after we die. Like even the most famous. If you're a person who's into biographies, or science history. I mean, you know, the name Thomas Edison might mean something to you, but really what's most important in terms of what Thomas Edison gave us is the light bulb that now allows this screen to work. Most of us are going to be completely forgotten after we die, and, and. All of us will live on forever once we are gone. I believe that is absolutely true. I don't think you can convince anyone of this. I think it's kind of the some awareness that we come to experientially once we see how deeply our lives are connected. Because if we consider ourselves to be part of reality, and most days I do, I don't know about you, and if we scratch the surface of the reality of our lives and we find there what is an inescapable truth, that reality is relationship, we see that, in fact, we have never not belonged. That to be alive is to be connected. This is true for those of us who are not terribly famous and never will be like myself. One of the things that reminds me of this is this picture. I posted about this on Facebook not too long ago. This is my life force plant. This plant is exactly the age that I am. It was given to me by a friend of my father's, another guy in publishing. His name was Surf Cerf, C-E-R-F. I think it was Surf Berkeley. Again, I'm already forgetting the details of his life. He has since passed on. But what I know when I look at this, which I call my life force plant, is that he loved my parents. And he loved me even before I was born. And as I joke with my wife, we better take care of this plant because once it falters, I am a goner. <laughs> and in fact, this plant is doing so well. You can read this for a metaphor of my own life or not if you wish. Uh, this plant is doing so well that recently uh, we say in my household that my uh, wife attends the things that grow in the ground that we don't eat. And I work on the things that grow in the ground that we do eat. So my wife decided to divide this. It's now existing in four different places. Yes, four different places in addition to the original. So I joked about this, and I said that they, those plants are now my horcruxes. And by the way, that's a joke in yesterday. Harry Potter doesn't exist either. And you see for a moment flashing across Jack's uh, face. Hmm. No, 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 he doesn't want to attempt to do that. Beetles are enough holding their legacy but here's the thing you know in 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 the harry potter stories right uh voldemort the personification of that which is destructive and cruel he divides himself with the hope that by dividing himself he will prove to be indestructible when in fact by trying to establish his own immortality he only establishes his own destruction I think that's such a beautiful teaching because the truth that voldemort could not recognize is this basic truth if reality is relationship we are never not connected it is never the case that we do not belong it's why i have no use for religions that spend a lot of time trying to colonize the afterlife <laughs> trying to plant a flag in the name of the correct doctrine Because I think they miss something that is already true for all of us. Believer or non or ambiguous faith or questioning or secure or whatever it is. There is no need to colonize the afterlife when we recognize that we are already participating in eternity. This is who we are. When I, who have struggled a good deal in my life with feeling a part of who is often felt apart from nature is one of my best instructors. I can see it right out there right now. And again, this is more an experiential awareness than it is a conceptual awareness. I will look at a tree and I will breathe and eventually the realization will sink down into my stubborn consciousness that I am breathing that tree and that tree is breathing me. <laughs> And that has been true for every single person, every single being, every single piece of greenery that has ever existed. And all of a sudden that sense of being apart from rather than a part of, it starts to diminish. It makes me want to live a life, especially in terms of relationship with the natural world, of better stewardship, of being more aware of the gifts. It also has helped wake me up and continues to wake me up, especially in relationship with those things that I don't consider to be the best parts of the inheritance and the legacy that I've gotten from the past. You don't need to do any psychological assessment on me longer than about two minutes without seeing there is a clear pattern of the men on the father's side of my family who have an unhealthy love of alcohol. It's a clear part of what I have inherited. It is one of the things that got me and helps me maintain the sobriety I have day by day, a day at a time, for now almost 14 years. And at this point in my recovery, something has become real to me. I am actually healing things in my ancestors that they could not heal in themselves. I am only here because somehow they made it through. I am only me because they were them. It also means that I get to pay it forward. I mean, the kinder and wiser me, who is still far, far, far from perfect, the kinder and wiser me is much more pleasant for you all to deal with. (laughs) This is a teaching that is so liberating. It is a teaching that is core to our Unitarian Universalist tradition. Emerson called it the Oversoul. He said, this is an interpretation of what he said, but I think it's on par. It's on point. He said, we don't really have a soul. He said that our own lives participate in that which is greater, which he called the Oversoul. It was his reading of Hindu philosophy. And again, it points at that reality. It points at that reality that John Lennon wrote. Limitless, undying love that shines around me like a million suns. It calls me on and on across the universe. I have either no definition of God or too many definitions of God. But for now, that one will do. (laughs) Limitless, undying love. Another person who I know and trust, person associated with this, Yes, I'm going to ramble on about the mountain goats again because I like to do that here. Some of you are getting used to it. Some of you are saying, who the hell are the mountain goats? I will tell you who the mountain goats are, but that's a different time. This is a podcast I listen to. It's with a guy named John Darneal, who at one point was the only member of the mountain goats. But now they're a full band. And for a guy who spends hours talking about his creative process, he said this in a recent podcast. And by the way, I Only Listen to the Mountain Goats is about 90% descriptively true of my life in any given week. He's talking about the session musicians in this podcast who come in and do the work that they're not part of the band. But he says they're the real pros. They're the ones who really nail it. He said, I think the whole concept of work being done by a single person is generally a fairly toxic God replacement idea. I think the whole concept of work being done by a single person is generally a fairly toxic God-replacement idea. I think he's pointing at that larger love, that larger life, that reality is relationship that we fall back into because it makes us possible in the first place is an experience of grace and a healing one. And it is the crux of this movie. Right after that scene that cry for help that only Jack recognizes as alone and as isolated as he thinks he is. There's a couple people who approach him, who we've seen throughout the movie, but we're not really sure what their purpose is. And Jack starts to become aware of their presence, and he thinks, they're going to tell the truth. They're going to call me out. They're going to let other people know that I'm a fraud. But it's the opposite. And it's one of the two sweetest moments in this movie. And I'm not going to give away the other one if you haven't seen it yet. But in this moment, these two people who Jack thinks are going to bring to him an accusation approach him and say, we remember the Beatles too. But we can't sing. (laughs) And so we thought we'd never hear Beatles songs again for the rest of our life. And you've given that back to us. And in that moment... Jack remembers that he is a living and. And he makes a different decision. He is not going to become rich and famous and jaded and isolated and alone. He's going to give these songs away for free. Cause as you can see crossing over his face, the Beatles may not exist, but a world without the Beatles songs doesn't have to exist. I mean, what we just, what we're doing here today, all five Beatles songs, is the only band we could do this with here at Wellsprings. <laughs> we have nine Beatles songs and one John song and one George song, so like, you know, we had to leave some out today. <laughs> Maybe that's for next week. Not kidding, it's not. As this movie moves towards its conclusion, as this message today moves towards its conclusion, he is, for the first time all movie, truly happy. He is that living and that no longer feels isolated. To borrow another British sentiment, the Beatles are dead. Long live the Beatles. And the closing of this movie is just as charming as the rest of it was. They, um, do a version of Obladi, Oblada which a couple critics said, oh my God, there's such better Beatles songs they could pick. And the truth is, "Obladi, Di, oh Da is not my favorite Beatles songs, but it's perfect for the ending of this movie. La, 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 life goes on. And, and, life goes on. Singers come, singers go. Famous people come, famous people go. Non-famous people come, non-famous people go. And the song and the meanings and the gifts remain. We are all already participating in eternity. And maybe this helps us ease up a little bit. That we can focus on the gifts we give rather than so much on the nature of the giver, ourselves or others. And that's not because of sin or judgmental stuff or ego or any of those other words religious types like to throw around, making it something that's bad that gets in the way. It's simply because things change all the time. And so maybe if we focus more on the gifts and less on the giver, we can just live into that reality. Life goes on. We cling less. We love more. And we know deep in our bones, deep in our heart, that what is truly connected can never, ever be destroyed. Amen. May you live in blessing. Would you pray with me? This breath reminds us that we are already here because of what is limitless. This breath reminds us that we are never not connected. This breath can call us to live a life offering our gifts and receiving the gifts back with grace, with freedom, with greater ease than many of us might have thought was imaginable. This breath, and this breath, and this breath can teach us how to love. Amen.